This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Well hey, good morning and welcome to Church Online. My name is Matt, lead pastor here at Anchor Church Sydney and we are so glad that you have chosen to join us today. Hey, this morning uh, I just wanted to preach a message that um, perhaps might bring some hope to people in our world in a time of hopelessness, a time of fear, confusion and uncertainty. I want to remind you of the truth of the good news message that we call the gospel. It's a story that um, Jesus told. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. But before we get into it, let me tell you a story. Uh, uh, Every summer, my family goes on holidays up to the mid-north coast of New South Wales and had this moment of self-awareness this summer break. I was sitting on the beach making sandcastles, playing with the kids, and I looked down the beach and beside me was another dad playing in the sand, making sandcastles with his kids. And as I looked down, I thought to myself, that guy looks kind of fit. What if he works out? Maybe I should go to the gym a bit more. Gee, uh, I like his tan. He's got a he's got a pretty good tan. Maybe I should take the uh, the long sleeve rashy off and forget about the skin cancer concerns and get a bit of a tan. And gee, I don't mind the big tiger tattoo that he's got on his arm. This is going to be the year for more tattoos for me. And I had this moment of realizing that I'm sitting on a beach on family holiday with my kids at a kid beach. Like I'm not even at Bondi. You know, Bondi Beach is the beach where. All of the most beautiful people in the world gather in one spot at one moment in time. I'm at a kid's beach making sandcars with my kids and I'm comparing myself to the dad next to me. Well, the very next thing I did was get into the car park and it's a sand car park and nearly every car in that car park was a four-wheel drive. And I thought to myself, for this one week a year, I really need a four-wheel drive. I should get a four-wheel drive. My Mazda 6, 5, two-wheel drive just doesn't cut it. So I went back to the holiday house and started uh, car sales searching for Toyota Prados that I could potentially buy for my family. Now, before you laugh at me, my guess is that you do the same thing all the time. You compare yourself. You compare yourself to the person that you live next door to. You compare yourself to your colleagues at work, and you spend most of the time comparing yourself to the highlight reels that people share on their Instagram feeds all the time. We do it every single day. In fact, psychologists have got a term for it. It's called social comparison theory. When we engage in upward social comparison, that is comparing ourselves to someone who we perceive to be a little bit further up the social ladder than us, we end up feeling bad about ourselves. Or when we look down and compare ourselves to someone below us on the social comparison, we feel good about ourselves. So so psychologists and sociologists call it upward and downward social comparison. But in the end, effectively what we're doing is we're looking up and we either end up devaluing ourselves or we look down and we end up devaluing another person. It doesn't work. Life feels like this giant game of comparison and we end up making ourselves small or making other people small. And so our world says to us, well, you know what the solution is? The solution is don't compare. In fact, just compare against your own personal best. But we know deep down, if we've been real honest with ourselves, that that's either a lie or we've just lowered the bar to the standard of me, right? That I'm the standard sweet. I made it because of the standard's me and I don't have to worry about it, right? There has to be another way. Why is it that we search for 
meaning as we compare ourselves to other people? Well, my guess is that we're, we're longing to know that our lives matter. You're longing to know that your life matters, that you have significance and worth and value, that, that you are lovable. And we are searching for this external form of validation, and we do so by comparing ourselves to other people. But one of the reasons that we do that, I believe, is that we've been made in the image of a God, the God who made this world, who loves us, and we've been created to know him and to be known by him and to worship him and to receive a deep sense of identity and significance and worth and purpose because he made us, knows us, and loves us. And this morning we've read a story about people who played this comparison game. The comparison game um, that Mark Twain, in fact, author of Huckleberry Finn, says to us, if we compare ourselves to others, it's the death of joy. He's right. Jesus has been telling us, us that for hundreds of years. And this story that we read of this morning reminds us of that truth. Well, in this story, we're introduced to two characters one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And as Jesus told this story to his original hearers, they instantly identified who the good guy and the bad guy was in this story. Every story has a goodie and a baddie. And Jesus tells a story of two characters. The first is a tax collector. Sorry, the first is a Pharisee. The Pharisee is the good guy in the story. The Pharisee is not a paid religious worker. He's a volunteer and he is held in the highest regard in first century. Uh, He is the person who takes his faith very, very seriously. He's kind of like the church guy. You know, the guy who he's always there early before church. He sits in the front row. He he feverishly takes notes as the preacher is preaching. He he carries a big, fat, thick, leather-bound ESV study Bible with all those tabs in the side. And his motto is, the thicker the book, the more holy you look and when the preacher says something profound he's like mm, 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 that's good and, you know he's the guy that's always giving he never lets the giving container go by without putting something in it he puts his hand up every time to help for the church work, working bee to help stack chairs after the service he's that kind of guy he's the religious guy and he's the good guy in the story well the second character we're introduced to there is a tax collector And he is at the opposite end of the social spectrum. If the Pharisee is at the top, the tax collector is at the very bottom. You see, in the first century, Rome sold the right to tax to the highest bidder. And this tax collector, a Jew himself, had sold out his own people in order to tax them on behalf of Rome. And the way that he earned a personal living was that you paid the tax man a visit and you couldn't do any business, you couldn't travel in or out of any town without having to pay the tax man a visit. You would have to pay him a visit. He would tax you the portion that you would have to give to Rome. And then he would take a little bit on top for himself. He would line his pockets by ripping his own people off. He was given all the authority in the world and zero accountability. In fact, people in the first century hated tax collectors. They loathed them. If you saw a tax collector coming your way, you would cross over the other side of the road just to avoid rubbing shoulders with him. In the first century, it was said you didn't have to keep your word to murderers thieves, and tax collectors. They hated them. They loathed them. Perhaps the best cultural equivalent I can think of is a Sydney city of uh, city council parking officer. You know, the guy who you get back to your car three seconds after you overstayed your limit, and there he is riding you a fine, and you're pleading for mercy, and he gives you a fine any, 
anyway. You know that feeling, that sense of injustice that rises in your heart? Well, that's how people felt towards tax collectors. Well, Jesus introduces us to these two characters and every single person listening knew instantly who the good guy was and who the bad guy was. Well, Jesus says that these two characters, they go to the temple to pray. Have a look at what it says here in Luke chapter 18, verse 10, about these two characters. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. You see, the Pharisee came to the temple that day and he begins to rattle off a list, a resume of all of the things that he has and he hasn't done. He says, God, look at what I've avoided. I haven't been unjust. I haven't been unfair. I haven't been unfaithful. If he's married, he's kept the marriage bed pure. If he's single, he's waiting for the one. Like this guy has avoided all of these things. Look at all of these things I've done, God. And then he says, and look at what I've, sorry, look at all these things I've avoided. And then he says, look at what I've done. I fast twice a week. Now you may not be aware, but the requirement for God's people under the old covenant law was to fast once a year. On the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the highlight of the Jewish calendar, the whole of the nation of Israel was required to fast. And so they were required once a year to fast. But this guy, he fasts twice a week. Twice a week, that's 104 times a year and 103 times more than is what required of him. He takes his faith Seriously, now I know that you know intermittent fasting is a bit of a thing these days, and I'm not too sure what that would look like for his physique. Perhaps he was gaunt, perhaps he looked totally fit. I'm not too sure. He takes his faith seriously. He fasts twice a week, but not only that, he gives a tithe, and that word just means tenth part. He gives a tenth of everything that he gets, all of his produce, all of his income, everything that comes off his farm, he gives back to God. I mean, he takes this so seriously. He's the type of guy, if you were to give him a birthday present, he would estimate 10% of the, sorry, calculate 10% of the estimated value of the present that you gave him, and he would donate that to church. He's that type of guy. Religiously, he's impeccable. He takes his faith so seriously, and yet he came to the temple that day, and he didn't really come to pray. He had come to boast in the presence of God. You see, there's a couple of problems with this Pharisee's prayer. The first problem is he believes that God will be impressed with his list. He comes to God and he offers his, his resume of things that he has and he hasn't done. And he believes that because of those things that God will be so impressed with think, Oh, man, I need to bless you. Thank you for doing all of those things. Let me answer your prayers. The second problem with this prayer is that the tax collector begins to, sorry, the Pharisee begins to do the comparison game. He stands in the temple with one eye on himself and the other eye on the tax collector. And he realizes that he's awesome. He's at the top of the social pecking order. He looks down on the Pharisee and he says, of course God will accept me. He plays the comparison game. But the problem with that is, is that He's failed to make the one comparison that counts. He's compared himself to everyone else in the temple and particularly 
the tax collector, but he's failed to compare himself to God. Because when he compares himself to God, he would realize that it doesn't matter how long his moral list is, he falls horribly short. Because God's standard is perfection. And so the religious Pharisee comes to the temple that day. He stands in the presence of God and he boasts about his moral doings. Well, the tax collector, on the other hand, is very different. You have a look at the way that he comes to the temple to pray that day. And this is what it says about the tax collector. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You notice immediately that the posture is very different. He doesn't walk into the temple and walk up the front. He, in fact, he stands off at a distance because he recognizes that as he comes into the temple that day, he walks into the presence of a holy and perfect God. And he is a sinner. And he doesn't want to get too close. And so he keeps his distance. And he doesn't hold his head up high and utter a loud prayer. Instead, he hangs his head in shame. And, and it says there that the passage says that he beats his chest. Now, in our culture, beating your chest is a bit of a sign of bravado, a bit Tarzan-esque. But in the first century, it's a sign of deep contrition and brokenness. And he, he beats his breast and he utters a simple prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Two very different characters offer two very different prayers as they come to the temple that day. And Jesus issues a verdict on those two prayers. He says in verse 14 there of that text, I tell you that this man, that is the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, rather than the religious guy. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, went home all good with God, made right with God, in relationship with God, rather than the Pharisee. Now, I don't know if you've grown up in church or Sunday school, but I remember being taught that parables are earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. It's a cute earthly story, perhaps an agricultural story or a story that you can connect with, but it has a nice heavenly meaning about it. The problem with that is, is that for the most part, Jesus told parables to get a response from people. Sometimes parables acted like a bit of a slap in the face, a, a wake-up call, and this parable is no less the case. Jesus tells this story to wake people up. In fact, if you go back to the start here in Luke chapter 18, verse 9, it says that he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. The story is told to wake people up, to get a response from people. And the punchline of this story makes people shook. They're completely shaken because they've been tricked. I don't know if you remember the, uh, the movie Terminator. The premise of Terminator is that uh, a guy by the name of Edward uh, John Connor, played by Edward Furlong, has led a resistance against a robot army in the future to defeat the robot army that has taken over the world. And so the way that Terminator 1 works is that Arnie, Arnold Schwarzenegger, human cyborg robot, is sent from the future into the past 
to go and kill John Connor so that before he grows up to be a man and leads this uprising against the robots, they deal with this problem. And so the premise of the movie is John Connor trying to escape from Arnie, who's trying to kill him. I'll be back. Terminator 2 starts like this. Arnie, human, cyborg, robot, beamed from the future into the past, into a truck-side, roadside, trucky bar, and he walks into this bar and he bashes a bike in, he takes his clothes and he walks out and he's got black sunglasses, a black t-shirt, black pants, black leather jacket, black boots on, and he's got a Winchester lever action shotgun shoved down his back and he jumps on a black Harley Davidson and he rides off down the freeway and the music in the background is bad to the bone. And it's clear in that moment that the producer and the director of the, of the movie are saying to you, bad guy. Well, the second scene is another Terminator, also beams back from the, from the future into the past, and he drives off down the freeway in a police uniform with like slick hair, like I'm talking slicker than I have today. Perfectly slicked hair, police uniform, pants with those like perfect pleat lines down the front, his shoes are so polished you can see your reflection in them. And he drives off down the freeway, freeway in a police car. And it's clear that the director of the movie is saying, good guy. Then we get to the scene in Terminator 2 where John Connor is in the middle of a hospital hallway and bursting in through one end is Arnie and bursting in through the other end is a police Terminator and you're freaking out thinking, I really hope that the police Terminator gets to John Connor before Arnie does and Arnie gets there first and he grabs him and he says to him, come with me if you want to live. Very bad Arnie impersonation. And he turns around and he shields John Connor from the bullets of the cop Terminator who's trying to kill him. And in that moment you realize You've been tricked that the good guy who you thought was the good guy is in fact the bad guy and the bad guy who you thought was the bad guy is the good guy. And I guess what I'm saying to you is Luke chapter 18 verse 14 is the Terminator 2 moment of the Bible because Jesus has done a number. He's tricked us into thinking that the good guy is the bad guy and then he switched it on us. You see, Jesus tells this parable to wake us up, to get a response. And the response he wants is us to ask a question. And the question is this, how is it that the obvious good guy is sent home away from God and the obvious bad guy is received and accepted by God? That makes no sense to us because in our economy, by our way of thinking, good people are rewarded and bad people are punished. I mean, we've been taught that our whole lives, right? That if you do good things, you're rewarded for it. If you do bad things, you're punished. What is it about this tax collector's prayer that Jesus values? Well, I want to say there's two things that Jesus loves about this prayer. The first is that the tax collector recognizes that he has a need. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The second is that he asks for help. He cries out, God, be merciful to me. Now, I reckon he picked that word mercy on purpose because as he walked into the temple that day, he would have noticed something. At the very center of the temple is what is known as the mercy seat. It's the place where the priest would offer a sacrifice, where an animal's throat would be slit and blood would be shed so that the priest might offer forgiveness. And the tax collector comes into the temple that day. He doesn't say to God, God, would you just lower your standard a bit? Would you sweep my sin under the carpet? Would you minimize all of the things that he's done? No, he's saying, God, would you deal with my sin? Would you do that for me? You know, we live in a culture that values performance. If you get a good mark, you get into the course. If you get a good time, you get the medal. If you do a good job, you get a promotion. 
And sometimes we think that that's how Christianity works. You know, we've believed a lie in our culture, and the lie is this. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. And I'm here to tell you today that that is a lie. If good people go to heaven, then heaven is empty. There is no one there. No, no, heaven is not for good people. Heaven is for the people, the type of people who have done exactly what the tax collector did in our story today, who come before God, recognize their need, admit their mistakes, and ask for help. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, in fact, a little bit later on in Luke's version of the life of Jesus, he said it's the tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes who are getting into heaven ahead of the religious people. How is that possible? What is it that Jesus values? What is it that God values? What they value is humility. Now, I don't mean the type of humility that's kind of a character trait of people. You know, when you watch the footy players, they're interviewed after the game, they score the winning try, the Royal Potter says, oh, you scored the winning try, you must feel great about yourself, what a good game. And the footy players kind of reply by going, oh, yeah, nah, yeah, nah, game of two halves, the boys did well, it wasn't about me, you know. And, and it's not that type of humility that Jesus is talking about. It's the type of humility that takes an honest look at the soul and says, I'm broken, I've made a mess of my life, I need help. It's that type of humility that Jesus values and loves. You know, grace that we read of in this story is the ultimate leveler. There are no pecking orders in heaven. There are no podiums. There's no first class flight. Every single person comes to Jesus on equal terms, a sinner in desperate need of grace. We believe that the ground at the foot of the cross is flat. Every single one of you needs Jesus. It doesn't matter how far from God you are or how close you are. We all need Jesus. You know, our significance, our worth, our value does not come from our comparisons that we make towards other people and what they say of us or don't say of us. Your significance, value and worth comes from the fact that the God of the universe created you, made you, and has demonstrated his love for you by sending Jesus to die on the cross. That sacrifice that was made in the mercy seat John, Jesus' cousin, says of him, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the one who dies to cover our mistakes, to give us a fresh start and a clean slate. God loves you and he wants you to come to him with a type of humility that says, God, I've made a mess of my life. I need your help. Would you save me? I want to offer every single one of you the opportunity to pray that prayer today and perhaps to click the link on our chat there that says, I'd like to commit my life to Jesus. It's going to be a very simple prayer. The prayer says, thank you, sorry, and please. So behind your screens, wherever you're watching today, if you'd like to pray that prayer, and if you would like to give your life to Jesus, become a Christian today, then simply pray this prayer along with me. Let's pray. God, I thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he has died in my place. Thank you that he has wiped my sins clean. Please forgive me. I've made a mess of my life. I've rejected you. I've lived as if you don't, if you don't exist. Thank you that you offer me a brand new life. Today, I commit my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you've prayed that prayer today, we would love to help you on your journey. Reach out to one of our team. We would love to send you a free Bible in the mail, connect with you, plug you into the life of our church. Thanks for tuning in today. We love you guys. Be blessed and we'll see you back here at Church Online next time.